today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to continue our discussion about where we are with the pandemic and, of course, with the uh, the latest variants, uh, which are very, very troubling. And, of course, the reaction from the Canadian government yesterday was to, uh, to ban uh, flights uh, for 30 days, anyway, from India and from Pakistan. But is that enough? And is it going to do what needs to be done at this end to be effective? Uh, so pleased to welcome to the program to talk about this, uh, Shuvaloy Majumdar, who is a Monk Senior Fellow uh, with the McDonald Laurier Institute. A pleasure to have you on the, the program, Shuv. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bill. Glad to be here. Uh, before we get into it, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening in India and get some perspective on that and, and how things got out of control there. But uh, we've had so many discussions over the last number of months about where we are here in Canada uh, and vaccine-wise and so many others. And if people want to get some background on this, you, an excellent piece that you wrote, I guess it was about a month ago, uh, Canada's Pandemic Management and Economic Recovery, uh, which, uh, if I could characterize it, I know it's a rather lengthy piece, but well worth the read. Uh, it's been a series of missteps and, and, and underestimations that seem to have put us where we are, hasn't it? Sadly, uh, it's been a complete underestimation of the virus, a mixture of politics uh, and incompetence when it comes to both the political and the permanent governments uh, and various levels in Canada. We sadly have been, as we're bearing witness in our day-to-day lives, um, unprepared to deal with a pandemic of this magnitude. And it's the tragedy is in the lives of the people who it affects directly. Well, because, as you wrote in the piece, uh, so many times it's like the government said, no, we don't really need to do that. And then six months later, yeah, we really do need to do that now, which uh, I guess what it does is, as we've been talking about on the program, it erodes trust. We said, well, do you guys really know what you're doing? It certainly erodes trust. I mean, at at one level, you know, the government bet on China to be a reliable supplier of vaccine uh, instead of other partners around the world and then had to come up with its own alternatives in the private sector. When it started to look at the private sector, it did not initialize the kind of production that Canada should have done domestically for its own assured supply uh, and instead had to outsource it. Of course, it outsourced it too late and it outsourced it to companies that are bursting at the seams in trying to supply the world its vaccine needs. Um, And because we were laid out of the gate and last through the door, uh, we don't have the kind of leverage and commitment that countries like Israel were able to afford themselves. Uh, it's just a long, I can keep going, sadly, for the next segment on, on this only, list. I don't mean it's only laugh, a three-hour show, it's, show. <laughs> it's only a three-hour show. I mean, it's such a long list of, of failure of leadership, failure of competence, failure of priorities, failure of understanding what our national interests are in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, and, uh, you know, the best that we can hope for at this point is that political leaders and politicians uh, get sorted, understand what the priorities are, and actually start acting in the interests of our people. Well, and especially in light of what we found out over the last, well, 48 hours or so, especially uh, with this new variant, this double uh, vi- vi- variant that they're talking about right now, mm-hmm. uh, anybody that thought that the light at the end of the tunnel was getting closer, I think is just uh, coming to the stark realization right now that this is a, we still have a big fight on our hands, don't we? You know, the flu vaccine and its own evolution teaches us that maybe you know, one variant a year or an adaption of the virus is something that we can manage. And massive global supply chains have been established around fulfilling, you know, the global demand to keep the influenza at bay. Uh, what's interesting about COVID in a dark sense is that we have now seen, what, five different variants just in the last six months alone. And it seems to be multiplying and becoming more vicious, more infectious, particularly for younger people, whereas in the past, Younger people had a better shot at not being hospitalized, or if they were hospitalized, they had a higher chance of not going into intubation. 
Um, what we're seeing coming from India is, is genuinely concerning uh, in the sense that it is really spreading like wildfire. It is affecting younger people. Uh, vaccines still seem to have some effect. I want to be careful not to let uh, you know, the public have a sense that vaccines in any way reduce the risk. I think getting a shot reduces your chance of going to a hospital uh, a great measure. Any measure is worth getting the shot over. So, you know, this is a country of 1.4 billion people, huge stresses in its society, uh, coping with the pandemic that is genuinely once in a generation. And, and I know we've done the, the flight. And by the way, just to your point about, you know, having to rely on other countries, I guess we've got an, another example of how frustrating that can be. Uh, yesterday when Major General Fortan announced that they'll be, uh, because of the, the wildfire spread of, of this virus in, in India right now, uh, the AstraZeneca shipments we're supposed to get are going to be delayed now, which is only going to make things worse on, on this side of the ocean. Right. I mean, there's, there's many supplies for AstraZeneca. Uh, India is obviously a major one. And uh, you know, together, Canada and India form 1.4 billion of the world's people is the best that I can say about it. You see the kind of cost that it's having in Indian cities and across the country. You can't help but understand why the, the country would have to prioritize the safety of its own people while balancing its commitments for deliveries around the world. Um, I, I think they're genuinely trying to balance both, but, you know, they have an obligation to ensure that their cities and their people um, have as much resistance as possible for some very dark and very difficult months ahead. I'll ask you the same question we've been dealing with uh, from a, a different standpoint here over the last couple of days. Uh, what happened in India? How did this thing get out of control? Because as, as we were saying about a couple of months ago, we were saying that India was one of these countries that we should look to to see, look at how they got their stuff going. They, they've got their act together. Uh, and now all of a sudden everything just seems to have fallen off the table. I think it's fair to say they underestimated how this mutation would evolve. Um, you know, this double mutation of the virus, the, the, the capacity for it to spread uh, is certainly an alarming advent. Uh, I don't know if that could have been predicted. But that being said, you know, India went through a harsh lockdown over the course of the last year. Mm -hmm. uh, they did do a partnership with the private sector. They were able to produce vaccine manufacturing supply. They grew a bit confident, probably overconfident. Um, religious festivals, electioneering and other aspects of Indian democracy uh, you know, it's a social society. Like these are people who love going. This, this my, my father called it recently. It's a city. It's a country of a thousand festivals, um, and I think the overconfidence at all levels of government in India uh, created the conditions for something more contagious to thrive. And so, it's difficult to assign blame on any individual actor or organization. But I think a confluence of events have just resulted in something very, very troubling. I want to ask you about the, the ban that uh, was initiated effective today, as it turns out, uh, with flights from India and from Pakistan. And, and we need to be clear about this in, in as much as there seems to be pretty strong evidence that this new variant originated in one of the western provinces of India. Uh, their strains have been also identified in the UK, Australia, Germany, Belgium, Nambia, New Zealand, Singapore, and the United States. And we know in Canada there's a case in Quebec, and I think three or four uh, legitimate cases in BC so far. So is this, is this this air this ban is this is this closing the barn door after the horse gets out? I mean, it's already out there. Yeah, I think whether you're talking about horses or cats, it's out of the bag. Yeah. And I think that you know stricter regulations is always something that would be welcome, particularly in the context of these new variants. Um, you look at models around the country for how they've been around the world for how they've been trying to contain um, the global reach of this virus, and you know some have successful models, some have less successful models. Um, in so many ways, I think it really rests on strict testing, on um, rigorous quarantines for people traveling. 
uh, there is an element of travel that just, you know, is untenable to stop uh, for so many humanitarian reasons or even uh, purposes around our own national economy. And I'm not saying it's centered upon India, but you've got a need for foreign workers to secure the Canadian food security supply chain, right? Uh, there's a lot of uh, laborers that are vital to our economy at this point. And what I think is really crucial is we get the balance of bans and testing and quarantines right to ensure that, um, you know, we have the strongest, thickest borders that the world and the country has ever known. So, again, we're, we seem to be leaning more towards lockdowns then and basically shutting things down for a period of time, which seems to be, I, I know some people think it's draconian, but it seems to be one of the most effective ways. I, th- I think maybe uh, to your point about how India may have let their guard down, I think obviously we've done that too, which is why we seem to, the, the wild variations, I guess, in the number of new cases over the last nine months. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting the sense right now, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this, that too many of us right now seem to be thinking, well, the vaccines are out there this fight's all but over i'm going to get vaccinated and i'm not going to get it and that's not the case at all you know we need to maintain our hope it's the mental health pandemic in this country is genuine and uh, although the weather is turning and the temptation to be social again is 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 a huge temptation for all of us i think we just need to be very clear and and, and very lucid about the idea that this this virus is a is a real is a real gem it's something that won't just relent it will require all of us to adapt and to bond together more closely as communities and as a country in dealing with this. Uh, you know, I have to ask the question that uh, at the outset of this, one of the key things that we wanted to protect was the public health system. You remember the, the language around leveling the curve mm-hmm. so that our public health system could uh, cope with the, with the initial wave of this virus. Um, you know, whether it's federal legislation or provincial administration, you have to wonder if the model of our public health system is sufficient to contend with this pandemic, that maybe it, it requires some innovative thinking, um, some different actors from the private sector or the nonprofit sector in ways to band together to supply the kind of protection that Canadians need when it comes to not just dealing with the pandemic, but also their regular medical issues that are going forgotten and neglected and coming at a huge price in the health and security of our people. I'm wondering, and it goes back to your point initially, I think, about the fact that we're just underprepared for this and that maybe we didn't take it seriously. I, I can remember, actually, from the local level, actually, having a discussion with the medical officer of health in the Hamilton area. This is over 10 years ago. And she started talking about the possible. I said, what's the next big concern? She said, pandemics. And I thought, really? Are you kidding? In the 21st century? Come on. Well, you know, and because we think of the Black Plague and thinking, well, those things are, 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 that's history. That's not, we don't have that now. You know, we're smarter now. We have vaccines now. And look where we are. I mean, I, I think globally we didn't take this as seriously or, or you know, understand the severity of it. And, and we're all paying the price for that now. I had the chance to serve in Foreign Minister John Baird's office as policy director, particularly during the period of the Ebola virus. And one of the things that struck me in that time was how effective, you know, global health cooperation was in containing that virus, but also how fragile our global health system really was. What I think nobody could have really appreciated was how duplicitous the People's Republic of China would have been at the onset of the virus from Wuhan. Instead of, you know, allowing public health officials who were well-networked with other public health officials around the world to do their jobs, the People's Republic of China made it a military concern. And from there came a period of opacity in terms of reporting. It continues. Uh, it, there came uh, the ideology and the enforcement of their weaponized commerce around the world, which affected even our own government in terms of thinking about initial flight bans 
Uh, I think that one of the things that we, we certainly underestimated in global health cooperation in the context of pandemics was what would happen if one of the key actors around the world decided not to play by the rules and instead aim to save face and try and uh, pretend that there wasn't a problem. So, you know, I, I think there'll be a lot of time for uh, accountability later, but what is required today is to get the math right on who are our friends, who are our partners, who are our opponents, and to do everything possible to protect Canadians from a disrupted world order. Because of that historical perspective, though, I guess the question we need to ask ourselves is, uh, have we learned anything from this? I mean, I, I think there's an argument to be made that, uh, especially here in southern Ontario, th those of us that remember the SARS problems from years ago, mm -hmm. uh, know that that was studied and restudied and, and analyzed. Uh, you know, Justice Campbell did a report on that. Others done that. And, and I don't know whatever happened to the reports. They're probably sitting in somebody's drawer because that would have served as a template for what was about to happen to us uh, with the onset of, of this uh, virus. But we don't seem to have, have picked up on that are, are we learning anything from this now and you you've, you've already raised some very intelligent points about what we need to be talking about here including the state of our public health system and, and the infrastructure there which i think is clearly pretty shaky now based on, on what's going on not, not through any fault of theirs it's just i i think we right. probably have not done the preparation and and never thought we were going to get to this point where we're going to have to rely so heavily on it Listen, I think the public servants, both federally and provincially, are doing the best that they can to cope with yep. the problem. But what I think has happened is uh, all of those reports, those studies, those recommendations that were provided by independent groups and by professional groups in provincial and federal public services uh, were shelved. They collected dust. And successive governments were not made to confront the priorities that those reflected. And the will to, to deal and contend with them was just not existent in the public at large. Um, and so I think on one level, uh, we do need to think about what happens when these studies, how to ensure these studies do not just go into a, a closet shelf somewhere and just decay and are actually animated and acted upon. I think that's, that's, a, that's a larger thought that's necessary around the implementation of recommendations for good public policy, particularly in public health. But the second area is I think, you know, our public health system was already busting at the seams before the pandemic. We had numerous reports, uh, both nonprofit as well as from governments, indicating the unsustainability of our own model of delivering health care for Canadians. And I think that, you know, one of the key things is to dispense with the politics and the ideologies around uh, how to deliver health care for Canadians uh, and to really focus on the principles of the Canada Health Act on patient care and on patient delivery and to be brave about bringing in actors that can serve our domestic needs, which are certainly going to be extraordinary, not just for this year, but for the coming years uh, in the in, in coming administrations at various levels of government. Uh, this is something that I don't think we can afford to just sit on our hands on anymore. It's a question that has come front and center. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing proposals that provide genuine innovation to help secure the, the lives and the livelihoods of Canadians. Well, and, and that's the discussion that we need to have. And I, I, I'd like to be optimistic and say, yeah, I think we've learned and we're going to do that going forward. But history indicates differently that, you know, three or four years out when we finally do wrestle this thing to the ground, uh, you know, political leaders at that time, like, well, we have to be austerity measured and we have to cut this program and that program. Uh, and, and, you know, we have short memories. You know, we're, we're the same ones right. who call, who tell our elected officials, I don't want to pay as much tax as I'm paying right now. And they, they respond to that and they say, okay, we'll start cutting here, cutting here 
your cutting ear. Uh, and then all of a sudden, as we found out, for, for instance, as you mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation, the vaccination program in the industry in this country, it evaporated over a period of time. And nobody paid much attention to it thinking, so what? What's the big deal? Well, it's a wow. big deal now. Yeah. Well, Bill, you, you mentioned like austerity as the only solution. I, I lament about that because I really wish that, you know, our debate wasn't just so centered around austerity, like cuts versus spending. There's also an antidote to austerity, and that is dramatic economic growth. Mm-hmm. The kind of debt that our country has burdened to get through this pandemic is totally reasonable. But at some point, that's going to come home to roost. And you're exactly right. The decision point will be cuts um, and spending and how to do that. But I would, I would contend, and my colleagues at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute, I think, would agree, is that we should be advancing a robust agenda for Canadian economic growth, growth that is worthy of paying off our debt, growth that is worthy of creating high-paying jobs for as many Canadians as possible. And we should be absolutely unapologetic about it, because I think that if we find ways to expand our economy beyond our reliance on American trade into new and dynamic and growing markets over the next 30 to 40 years then we have a chance to, 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 to actually pay off the debt, to reform our public systems, to be able to provide Canadians a quality of life they deserve and want. Absolutely. And I know that was one of the thrusts of the piece I was just referring to from uh, from March, I guess it was, that was published. Uh, I, I enjoy your readings. I think they're very insightful and very thought-provoking. It was a real pleasure to, to have you on the program today to actually talk about this show. Thank you so much for this. Alongside you uh, and my mother, that makes two people that reads my work. So thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in good company then. Stay well. We'll thank talk you. again soon, I hope. You too. Uh, Majumbar, of course, a senior fellow at uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute. And like I say, if you just want to Google uh, and get a couple of the articles that he has written, I think you'll get some pretty good insights as to where we are and how we can get out of this mess, too. And we need to, to have those discussions, as he said. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.